Please turn with me in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 25, verses 10 to 22. Exodus 25, verses 10 to 22. Listen as I read. They shall make an ark of acacia wood. Two cubits and a half shall be its length, a cubit and a half its breadth, and a cubit and a half its height. You shall overlay it with pure gold. Inside and outside you shall overlay it. And you shall make on it a molding of gold around it. You shall cast four rings of gold for it and put them on its four feet. Two rings on the one side of it and two rings on the other side of it. You shall make poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold. And you shall put the poles into the rings on the sides of the ark to carry the ark by them. The poles shall remain in the rings of the ark. They shall not be taken from it. And you shall put into the ark the testimony that I shall give you. You shall make a mercy seat of pure gold. Two cubits and a half shall be its length, a cubit and a half its breadth. And you shall make two cherubim of gold. Of hammered work you shall make them on the two ends of the mercy seat. Make one cherub on the one end and one cherub on the other end. Of one piece with the mercy seat shall you make the cherubim on its two ends. The cherubim shall spread out their wings above, overshadowing the mercy seat with their wings. Their faces to one another, toward the mercy seat, shall the faces of the cherubim be. And you shall put the mercy seat on top of the ark. And in the ark you shall put the testimony that I shall give you. There I will meet with you, and from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim, that are on the Ark of the Testimony, I will speak with you about all that I will give you in commandment for the people of God. Pardon me, for the people of Israel. Let's pray together. Oh God, we ask your help as we study the mercy seat this morning. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Well, hello again to all of our viewers in Barbados and Toronto and wherever else you may be. Perhaps uh, some have just joined us midway through the broadcast, especially for those of you who are watching, who may not be regular churchgoers anywhere. Welcome to you. We're glad that you could join us for this live stream. And usually what we do at our church is we work consecutively through large sections of the Bible, even through whole books of the Bible over several weeks or even months or years. But over the course of our online meetings, uh, as this COVID-19 situation has uh, forced us to do, we'll be taking a break from that approach and we'll be studying the Bible, the scripture in a different way. Either isolating small sections of scripture that can be addressed in one sermon or exploring a particular biblical theme in a single standalone sermon. And this morning I've taken that latter approach and we'll be addressing the theme of the mercy seat, which was referred to in the passage that I just read in Exodus 25. And if you have no idea whatsoever what the mercy seat is, no problem. We're going to ask and answer three questions about the mercy seat this morning. First, what was it? Second, why was it? And third, where was it? 
And by the end of the message this morning, the answer to all of those questions should be clear to you. So let's begin with the first question. What was the mercy seat? And first of all, notice the past tense. The mercy seat was something, but it is no longer extant. You may hear Christians speak about the mercy seat as they preach or as they pray, but they're not speaking literally about a physical thing because there is no mercy seat in any of our churches. There was, however, a mercy seat in the center, in the worship center of the ancient Jewish community, first in the tabernacle and then later in the temple. And it was created sometime around 1500 BC or possibly a couple hundred years later, depending on how you date the life of Moses and the exodus from Egypt. But it was created when God gave the instructions to Moses in Exodus 25 that we just read. And then it continued to be a fixture in Jewish worship until the Babylonian conquest of Jerusalem around 600 BC, when the Ark of the Covenant either was destroyed or went missing. We just don't know what happened to it. See, the mercy seat was part of the cover of the Ark of the Covenant. And the Ark of the Covenant itself was a wooden box. We read about it just a few moments ago from Exodus 25, verses 10 to 22. The Ark of the Covenant was a wooden box, roughly four feet long, two feet wide, and two feet high. And it was overlaid with gold. Inside it, as Exodus 25, 16 says, was the testimony. In other words, the Ten Commandments, the tablets containing the Ten Commandments that God had given to Moses. And much later in history, the biblical book of Hebrews tells us that there were a couple of other things in the Ark of the Covenant also. Aaron's staff that budded and a container of manna. Anyway, this Ark had a cover. This box had a cover. And on this cover were two angels, one on either side with their wings stretching toward the middle of the cover, probably something like this. And in between the angels, in the middle of the cover was the mercy seat. More on the location of the mercy seat later. But approaching a basic definition of what the mercy seat was, what do we mean when we say the mercy seat? We could say that it was the middle portion of the cover of the Ark of the Covenant. And whether it consisted of an emblem or a symbol or literally like a chair or a table or something like that, we don't know. Perhaps it was just an empty space between the angels. But the mercy seat was the middle portion of the cover of the Ark of the Covenant. So that's what the mercy seat was. Now more to the point, why was the mercy seat created? And we're moving here from our first point to our second point. After all, it was God's instructions to Moses to create the mercy seat that we read just a few moments ago from Exodus 25. Why did God command Moses to create the mercy seat? We have seen what the mercy seat was. Let's consider now why the mercy seat. And the first thing that we need to understand in answering this question is a general principle. Everything in the old tabernacle and temple system was merely instructed 
to teach us about spiritual realities. When God commanded the Israelites to build a tent or a tabernacle where they could perform religious functions, it was not because God needed a place to live. It was not because God was homeless and wanted a tent to dwell in. God did not command them to sacrifice animals because he was hungry and needed animal sacrifices to satiate his appetite. The construction of the tent or the tabernacle in the worship of the Old Testament was not for God's sake, but for the sake of instructing his people. It wasn't meant or intended to meet a need in God, but to meet a need in God's people, namely that we would be instructed about spiritual realities, which those things represented. And that was true of the tabernacle, the tent structure, and the same goes for the latter, the later permanent structure, the temple. When the tabernacle uh, uh, became a permanent fixture, uh, when it was replaced by the temple, the same was true. Everything in the temple was instructed to teach us about spiritual realities. Listen to the words of Acts 7, 48 to 50. The Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands. As the prophet says, heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? God does not need somewhere to dwell. God is not in need of any of the activities or ceremonies performed in the tabernacle or in the temple. So what are we to make of them then? Listen to Hebrews chapter 8 and verse 5. They serve as a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, that is the tabernacle, he was instructed by God saying, see that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. So that's a general principle. And now as we return our thinking to the mercy seat, we can understand that the mercy seat wasn't something that God needed, but something that the people of Israel needed, that we needed to read about in the scriptures to instruct both them, the ancient Israelites, and us, modern people living under the new covenant, about heavenly realities. God gave the mercy seat just as he gave everything else under that old tabernacle and temple system, God gave the mercy seat to be instructive to us about heavenly realities. And what are the heavenly realities of which the mercy seat was a copy and a shadow? There's much that we could say here, but for the sake of time and simplicity, let me say only this. Ultimately, the mercy seat was given in order to teach us that notwithstanding our sin, God is still willing to meet with humanity. Let me demonstrate the truthfulness of that point. If I asked you, where did God usually meet with mankind during the course of the Old Covenant? The correct answer would be the tabernacle or the temple. But if I asked you to be more specific and said, where exactly in the tabernacle? Or where exactly in the temple did God meet with man? 
the correct answer would be the mercy seat. Douglas Stewart says that the Ark of the Covenant was the item that would symbolize God's presence among his people. And of course, more specifically, it was at the mercy seat on top of the ark that God promised. To Exodus 25:22. There, that is, at the mercy seat, I will meet with you. And from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim that are on the Ark of the Testimony, I will speak with you. Thus, the mercy seat was created to be a meeting place within a, what was already a meeting place, the tabernacle or the temple. And that God would meet with sinners at all is great mercy. We sang already this morning, holy, holy, holy. That's what God is. And holiness can mean more than one thing, depending on its usage and its context. But as pertaining to our discussion of the mercy seat, holy means morally pure. God is that. God is morally pure. But we are morally blemished. All have sinned, the Bible tells us. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. Sin is doing the things that God has forbidden or leaving undone the things that God has commanded. And all of us have done what God forbids and all of us have failed to do what God commands. And so what mercy then that a holy God would meet with sinners at all. We don't deserve it. It's mercy. It's grace. It's unmerited. The mercy seat the meeting place of God with sinners teaches us that ultimately, ultimately that notwithstanding our sin, God is still willing to meet with us. Now there were conditions to be sure. People who worshiped pagan gods couldn't just waltz into the most holy place in the tabernacle where the Ark of the Covenant was kept. God would have struck them dead. In fact, God would have struck even his own high priest dead if he did not approach in the prescribed way. You can see Leviticus chapter 16 for threats and cautions along those lines. But assuming that we approach God the right way, most notably with the blood of a substitute, God is willing to meet with us. This is the first and foremost message of the mercy seat. So we've covered, firstly, what the mercy seat is, and secondly, why God instructed Moses to create a mercy seat on top of the ark. Let's consider now where the mercy seat was. First of all, as I've already said, it was in the Jewish tabernacle, then in the temple, once the temple was constructed. So the mercy seat was in the place of the worship of God's people. But more specifically, it was in the most holy place. Let me help you visualize it. The basic design of the tabernacle and the temple was the same. 
there were gradations of access or stages of access. They were not circular, it was a rectangular shape, but like concentric circles. We could all imagine if you dropped a rock in a pond, there would be ripples in the pond, concentric circles moving outward. And if we were to use that as a metaphor, there were these gradations of access moving towards the center of the tabernacle or towards the center of the temple. And the innermost circle, the innermost place, was the most holy place. And it was understood that the most holy place was also the most important place in the temple. So the mercy seat was in the most important place in the temple. Everything in the tabernacle and the temple, everything in the outer circles, so to speak, if we return to the ripples in the pond analogy, everything in the outer circles served as a frame, like a picture frame, so to speak, around that which was in the middle, the focal point of the temple, namely the most holy place. And in the center of the most holy place was the Ark of the Covenant. And on top of the Ark of the Covenant was the mercy seat. The movement of religious worship throughout the calendar year revolved around the most holy place. All of the activities of religious worship happened around the most holy place. As the priests bustled around the temple performing their duties, the most holy place was central to it all, all the time. And the religious worship of the people of old climaxed once annually, once every year, with the high priest's entrance into the most holy place. That was the highest point of the year in terms of religious worship on the Day of Atonement. Now imagine walking into the most holy place. So here you are in the most important place in the tabernacle or in the temple. And in the center of the room is the ark. And on top of the ark, you see two golden angels with wings about two feet long on top of the ark of the covenant. Again, stretched toward one another with their faces toward the middle area between them. Where would your focus go? To the same place where the angels are looking. You walk into an empty room and there's only two other beings in there and they're both looking at a spot. Your eyes are naturally going to be drawn to that spot. So literally the mercy seat was as central as it could be to Old Covenant worship. It was literally the focal point of all Old Covenant worship. It was at the very center of the tabernacle layout, in the center of the ark, which itself was in the center of the most holy place, which was the most important place in the tabernacle. Consider this point from another angle also. Alec Motier points out that the construction of the ark, the table, and the lampstand, which were the three main things in the tabernacle. The construction of the ark, the table, and the lampstand preceded the construction of the tent to house them. 
So they made the things that would go in the tabernacle before they even made the tabernacle. And then Motir quotes another commentator who says, the tabernacle therefore serves them, these objects. They do not serve the tabernacle. So the things in the tabernacle, the ark, the table, and the lampstand, were more important in a sense than the tabernacle itself. They were created first, and the tabernacle was basically just a frame, like a picture frame, to surround them, the focal points. And within the tabernacle, the table and the lampstand were in the holy place, outside the most holy place. You see, the table and the lampstand were a concentric circle outside of the most holy place. One more ripple of the pond outside that most central place, the most holy place. So even the table and the lampstand were distinguished as being in some sense less important than the ark, as the ark had access into the most holy place, whereas the table and the lampstand had access only into the holy place, but not the most holy place. So looking at it from both of those angles, the whole structure of the temple or tabernacle and even the order in which it was constructed and where the ark was placed inside the tabernacle or the temple draws attention to the importance of the ark and the gaze of the angels toward the center of the cover draws further attention to the mercy seat. What I am trying to get across as clearly as I can to you, is this. The mercy seat was the spatial focal point of Old Testament worship. If you were to answer the question, where is the most important place in Old Testament worship? The correct answer would be the mercy seat. And if the mercy seat is instructive. Remember, it's not for God's sake to meet a need in God, but it is for our sake to meet a need in us, namely that we would understand the spiritual realities. And if the mercy seat instructs us about the spiritual reality that God is willing, notwithstanding our sin, to meet with us, And if the mercy seat is central to Old Testament worship, then it follows, therefore, that the dominant theme or message of Old Testament worship is that God is still willing to meet with sinners. God must be approached the right way, yes. In the prescribed manner, yes. Most notably with the blood of a substitute. But in principle, the mercy seat teaches us that he is willing and even desirous to meet with sinners. That's why God initiated relationship with Abraham, who was like basically the great granddaddy of the Israelites. This is why God made promises to Abraham and to his offspring. And in partial fulfillment of those promises, God made Israel into a nation and gave them a mercy seat to be the spatial focal point of their worship. 
God wanted the descendants of Abraham to understand that God's merciful condescension, God's willingness to meet with his people, their sin notwithstanding, is the dominant theme, ought to be the dominant theme in their worship. God wanted them to know that, and God wants us to know the same. That's why he caused it to be written down and recorded. As Romans 15 and verse 4 says, whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that is, as new covenant believers. So the mercy seat was not only for their instruction, that is, the ancient Jews, the mercy seat was also for our instruction. It was written down for our instruction, according to Romans 15 4. God wants us to know, as he wanted them to know, that he is willing and desirous to meet with sinners. Sin in itself is not a deal breaker. Though the Israelites sinned against God in many ways, God made provision for them to return to him. God made provision for them to approach him. God made provision for them to meet with him. God made provision for his presence to be specially with his people. Most peculiarly, most particularly at the mercy seat. In Leviticus 16, we read about the proper way to approach the mercy seat. And one of the requirements was that, as Leviticus 16:11 says, Aaron shall present the bull as a sin offering for himself and shall make atonement for himself. Aaron was to kill a bull as an atonement for himself, that is, as a substitute for himself, so that he himself would not have to be killed when he, as a sinner, met with the Holy God. So they, the ancient Jews, brought the blood of bulls and goats when they came to meet with God at the mercy seat. But such sacrifices, animal sacrifices, were always just shadows, pictures of something else, something greater. As the writer of Hebrews says, it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. And he reasons that otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered? In other words, if they were effective, you wouldn't have to do it over and over again. So even the thoughtful Old Testament believer could have understood that the animal sacrifices that were brought when approaching God were not effective, but merely instructive. Again, operating within that overall paradigm that everything in the Old Testament tabernacle and temple system was just instructive, teaching us about spiritual realities, anticipatory of something else. And what were they instructing us about? What spiritual, to what spiritual realities were they pointing? What were they anticipating? After saying that it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin, the author of Hebrews goes on to immediately say, consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, 
sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In the context of dealing with animal sacrifices, the author of Hebrews introduces the body of the Lord Jesus Christ, which would be slain, which would be broken, whose blood would be shed as those animal sacrifices were, as a substitute, as an atonement for the sinners who are trying to approach God. All of the animal sacrifices foreshadowed a better substitute that would only have to be offered once because it was effective, not over and over again because it was ineffective, but once. Jesus Christ died once in the place of sinners. Jesus, a human substitute as opposed to an animal substitute, which could never be truly fitting. Jesus, the Son of God, took on flesh and dwelt among us in order to live and to die in the place of sinners so that we might draw near to God, so that we might have a mercy seat at the center of our worship, just as the Jews of old had a mercy seat at the center of their worship. Through Jesus Christ, with his blood, we approach God. That is what the approach of sinners to the mercy seat with the blood of animals was instructing us about. That is what the approach of sinners to the mercy seat with the blood of animals was anticipating. Through Jesus Christ, with his blood, we sinners approach God. And that heavenly mercy seat, the possibility of drawing near to God, the prescribed way, yes, not haphazardly, not willy-nilly, not unpreparedly, the proper way, the prescribed way with the blood of a substitute in our hands, yes. But we may approach with the right substitute, in the prescribed way, we may approach God. God is still willing to meet with sinners. Our sin notwithstanding. Those are the spiritual realities to which the mercy seat of old pointed and testified. Remember, the earthly things were a copy and shadow of heavenly things. The heavenly mercy seat then ought to be at the center of our worship in the new covenant where we draw near to God with the blood of an effective substitute, the Lord Jesus in our hands. Just as the literal physical mercy seat was at the center of the worship of God's old covenant. There was much complexity to old covenant worship laws about this and regulations about that, doctrines to learn, stories to interpret and understand. And there is perhaps less, but still much complexity, even to new covenant worship. Laws and regulations about this and that, 
doctrines to learn, stories to interpret and understand. But even the simpleton could understand what the mercy seat, the mercy seat signified way back when. The central truth of our worship is that God is willing to meet with sinners. And even the simpleton can understand that now in our day and age. Even the smallest child. You don't have to be a master theologian to get it. You don't have to understand everything about Christianity to get the most fundamental thing, the most central thing. God is willing to meet with sinners. They went to a literal, spatially located mercy seat to meet with God with the blood of animal sacrifices in their hands. But that was just a picture of the privilege of the human race to go to God at a heavenly mercy seat, no longer spatially located, but just as real, with the blood of Jesus Christ in our hands. And God is willing to meet with us as he was willing to meet with them. This reality ought to be central. This reality ought to be central in our individual lives, in our families, and in the church. Amidst everything else that goes on, at the center is Christ crucified so that sinners may draw near to God. The truth that Jesus lived a perfect life as a substitute, a representative for those who didn't. The truth that Jesus died a death that he did not deserve as a substitute, a representative for those who did deserve it. That by trusting in what he's done, his perfect life, his broken body and his shed blood, by taking hold of that blood, so to speak, and approaching God, pleading the atoning efficacy of his blood, we may approach God, knowing, confident that he is willing, desirous even, that we draw near. It is his provision, after all, of Jesus Christ in order that we may draw near. It is he who designed the mercy seat in order to instruct us. God wants us to draw near. He wants us to draw near in the prescribed way. He wants us to draw near with the blood of an efficacious atoning sacrifice. But God wants us to draw near. We may draw near to God by the blood of Christ. This truth ought to be central to us in our individual lives, in our families, and in our churches. The mercy seat ought never to be relegated to the periphery so that our duties loom larger. We have duties, yes. We ought to think about our duties, yes. But they ought never to become more central to us than the mercy seat. The mercy seat ought never to be pushed out to the edge so that our guilt looms larger. We ought to be broken about our sin. We ought to be contrite about our sin. We ought to admit when we have guilt and confess it. But our guilt ought never to loom larger than the mercy seat. 
Our guilt ought never to become the central thing in our Christianity. Just as our duty should never become the central thing in our Christianity. What should loom the largest before us? Always and ever. What should be the most central thing to our understanding of Christianity and to the way that we live out our Christianity in our individual lives, in our families, and in our churches is this. We may draw near to God because of the sacrifice of our substitute, the Lord Jesus Christ. And our sin notwithstanding, God is willing and desirous to meet with us. There is a mercy seat. May we trust in Jesus, making use of the privilege of drawing near to God through him. And would we keep that privilege central, foremost in our hearts and minds? Help the simpletons understand it. Help the little children understand it. Whatever else you don't get about Christianity, get this. Sin in itself is not a deal breaker. God is willing to meet with sinners. There is a mercy seat. Draw near to that mercy seat with the blood of Jesus in your hands. This is amazing grace. Let's sing amazing grace in response.